0: If you'll take God's word and turn to 1st Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Is it plenty loud enough? Can everyone hear? Without their ears bleeding. Okay, that's the objective. The sweet spot to hear. And let's save the blood. Uh, no, no bleeding. First Peter chapter 1. We'll read and pray. If you don't have notes, the outline is in the back table. If you need it, just kind of either make your way there or someone can help out, pass those out. Let us know, okay? The the point of that is obviously to write down notes to the side, to the margins, however you want to best utilize that. You can tuck that into whatever personal study you're doing throughout the week. So let's go ahead and read chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you're going to stand to your feet, I know you have items in front of you. We're going to read verse 14 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to ask the Lord's help. The aim is to be equipped, and all of that comes by the ministry of His Spirit as we place ourselves under His Word, of which we get to dive yet again into the richness of His Word. So, 1 Peter 1.14 reads the following. <clears throat> as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Let's thank the Lord for His Word this morning as well as that hope and faith that are in God. Father, we thank You this morning. We, in advance, express our gratitude as well as being humbled that this beautiful day of which You have already declared Your divine nature and eternal power through the, the rising of the sun, The coolness of the morning and Lord, even the anticipation, we pray that there would be great enthusiasm and expectation that you would help us to lift high the name of Jesus Christ this morning. We hope to do that in song. We hope to do that as we hear your word and joyfully worship in and through it. And Lord, we look forward to worshiping around the table. We are reminded that we have been procured and saved, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but through the precious blood of Christ, your son. Lord, we thank you for the role that your word that endures forever plays in this wonderful miracle of instilling hope in us and making us right with yourself. As we look into its character now, we pray that you would help us to unpack and be impacted by all of the implications, as well as, Lord, in Your sovereign will, what You desire to, uh, for us to apply in this modern era to be a people who are faithful and cling to the, its authority as well as its sufficiency. Lord, we ask that You would convict us of sin and that You would work among us for Your great glory through Your Spirit. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats this morning. Again, welcome to equip hour by way of reminder. That's what this hour is. It's to equip us to make us better worshipers, right? At the end of the day, we want to be better worshipers. We want to be equipped to steward this treasure of a gospel message with greater integrity. We want to do it with greater zeal. And we want to be equipped, as we will see later in the book of Jude, that will be preached in a moment to contend earnestly for the faith. These times from 9 to 10 a.m. on Sunday morning in Northlake Bible Church has equipped us to do all of these things for God's glory. And if we are going to be faithful and fruitful as a people to do those things, to be better worshipers, to steward this gospel, and to contend for the faith, it's imperative for us, non-negotiable, not a suggestion, that a systematic and thorough, regular study of the doctrine found in God's Word be undertaken. So that's what we're doing over the next few weeks, just by way of reminder, as people are coming and going with the summer. We are covering a study in a series called The Fundamentals of the Faith put together by Grace Community Church. This is not subject matter that they created of their own making and their own imaginations. They simply looked at the whole counsel of God, took foundational doctrines that are found in God's Word, and put them together in scheduled form. For us, because of its depth and breadth, we're going to take 13 lessons, and classic to us, we're going to slow it down, because there's no need to be in any, any hurry. We're going to spend about 24, 25 weeks Right now, we've parked the car in the the parking lot known as Bibliology, the nature, preservation, and delivering of God's Word to us. Then we'll traverse to the main subject, He who is God Himself, of this book, and that is a study of theology proper. We'll traverse to God's Son, second person of the Trinity, who left the glories of heaven. We'll look at His person and His work As he laid down his life on a cross of which we will be reminded in sweet fashion around the table in a moment. He did all of this to accomplish the miracle of salvation. And so we'll unpack soteriology. Integral to that miracle being wrought in our lives is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we'll look at pneumatology after that. Then we'll make our way to ecclesiology, the nature, purpose of the church. And then we'll spend some sweet time around practical theology, areas of Christian living. Give you a reminder of where we've been. This is our last time in this particular section. Next Sunday, we'll actually just look at how do we study this glorious book, and then we'll dive into theology proper. Thus far, we've looked at the revelation of God, its composition, its creation, Last week, we looked at its credibility or the evidence and believability of this book and some of the implications that flow out of that credibility. Now, this Sunday, we will look at its character, the authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency of Scripture. Now, authority, we covered that in large measure last Sunday, as we looked at the infallibility, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of God's Word, that in part, because of these things being wonderfully true and irrevocably true, this message comes with tremendous amount of authority, final authority in our lives, that to disobey it is to disobey God. Okay. Now we make our way to the clarity of the Bible. And the question in front of us with this particular characteristic is, is it possible for us to understand the Bible. Is it possible to understand the Bible? Now, any one of us who has begun to read the Bible in any serious fashion, you begin to realize that, no doubt, some parts of the Bible are are easily understood, while other parts present a measure of challenge. Has anyone ever experienced that? You can read through ten passages and it just lands on top of you with crystal clarity with perhaps even very little effort at that juncture and then you reach a passage you know like that's a head scratcher and that's going to require a little bit of work well peter reminded his readers even in the early church right at the beginning of the inception of the church that some parts of even paul's letters and epistles that they themselves were difficult to understand 2 peter 3:15 reads, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Inspiration. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, and here it is, that are hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Now, friends, we have to admit that even from this and from our own experience, that not all of Scripture are we able to understand easily. But, and that's a big but, it would be a mistake to think that most of Scripture is either impossible or is difficult to understand. In fact, one of the things that we will accomplish with this swift overview of how the Old Testament and New Testament Affirm that the scripture is written in such a way that its teaching is able to be understood by ordinary believers. This will be our aim. Majority of it is easy to understand, and yet there are those passages which prove challenging. Even when you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, who has the fault for these things being challenging, right? Is it the Bible itself? Is it the blame cast upon Scripture? Look at 2 Peter 3.15. Peter assigns even some moral blame on those who twist these passages to their own destruction. The fault lies with those reading God's Word. Peter does not say that things are impossible to understand. He simply says that some things are difficult to understand. So for you and I, when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, we have to unpack, well, let's define what we're talking about. The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that it's able to be understood. It's able to be understood. Some areas require more effort than others, but they are to be understood nonetheless. Part of the biblical basis, and that's where we always run to, not our own viewpoints, not the... Opinions of man, but the biblical basis for the perspicuity of Scripture, right? It is clear, pristine. For starters, we have the Old Testament. And let's just walk through a few of which this is affirmed, even of old. You have the great Shema, this mountaintop of a passage in Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to who? your sons, your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I want to ask Rabbit Trail for a moment, is this too loud for you? No. Okay, perfect. Last thing, we want it to be is distracting. You shall teach them to your sons. Now, this command to teach children assumes an ability to summarize and make plain at some level the whole counsel of God that had been revealed at this point, right? Even recently for us in this great book of Colossians, our pastor opened up Colossians 3.20, where even in there it is assumed that children are not only in the presence of the reading of God's Word, but they are able to understand it, right? Children, obey your parents, You make your way to Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the Word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Even Psalm 19 was the first psalm in the passage that we read at the start of this series. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19.7. Restoring the soul. And here it is. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And what does it say there? Making wise The simple. Anyone included in that simple category? Yes. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The Old Testament affirms the clarity, perspicuity of Scripture. The New Testament, not surprisingly, affirms the exact same thing as God's Word is always consistent. You have ten times in the gospel alone, and you can recall this in the life and ministry of Christ himself. There's this question that he forcefully delivers and inquires to those in front of him. And what is that question? Have you not read? Have you not read? And in all of those questions, you begin to notice that in his conversations and in the disputes that arise in his day, He never responds to any questions with a hint of blaming the Old Testament for being unclear. It's not the Bible's fault that they did not understand. Even when speaking to first century people who were removed from David by a thousand years and removed from Abraham by two thousand years, Jesus still assumes that such people are able to read and to understand rightly the Old Testament Scriptures. Have you not read? And so who or what does He blame their misunderstanding on? Whether He's talking to scholars, or whether He's talking to ordinary common people, Jesus always blames the misunderstanding not on the Scriptures themselves, but on those who misunderstand it or fail to accept it. Have you not Read. Even after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, the blame for failing to understand is always on the reader and never on the scripture themselves. Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. And indeed they have spoken. When you make your way to the epistles, even in the New Testament, the apostles we note throughout these letters they don't write to just church leaders do they who do they write to they write to entire congregations everyone and he even and they even encourage the reading and sharing of their letters with other churches first timothy 4:13 until i come give attention to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and teaching now the appropriate conclusion from these passages is that Scripture repeatedly affirms that it is able to be understood. And not only certain verses and statements are able to be understood, but the meaning of the whole of Scripture on many different topics is able to be understood by God's people. And this affirmation about the nature of Scripture is, is grounded in a deep assumption that Scripture... are simply a communication from a God who desires to communicate to us clearly, which is no shock to us, right? If God is going to hold us morally accountable for obeying His Word, listen, if He's going to hold us morally accountable for obeying His Word, He's not going to give us revelation that's impossible to understand. Everyone tracks the logic here. This leads us to the theological basis for the perspicuity of Scripture, right? The theological reason for the clarity of the Bible and affirming this clarity rests and is grounded in the nature of God Himself. Wayne Grudem writes the following, He is the omnipotent God who created the marvelous gift of the human language so that He could use it to communicate it clearly. He is the infinitely wise God who knows the most effective way to dispense that communication. He's the infinitely loving God who cares for His people and He desires to communicate. He's this loving God. He delights in interpersonal communication and relationship, i.e. the garden. There was this communion to be experienced with God. And of course, it was broken by sin. Praise God, there has been a solution to rectify that brokenness and corruption, and we'll get to celebrate that here in just a moment. In summation, the clarity of the Bible means that it is written in such a way so as to be understood. Now, before you and I move on to the necessity of the Bible, we have to ask well, okay, the Bible is clear. Well, then what do I do with sections that are difficult? It's a legitimate question, no? What do I do with those passages that are no doubt difficult to understand, Allah, Second 2 Peter 3.15? Well, next Sunday, one of the things I encourage you to come back for is we'll traverse from talking about the nature of the Bible, which has been rich and helpful, but just okay, very practically, well, how do we begin to study it and unearth its riches? Well, In these passages that are difficult to understand, there are a few things that are required of us. Time, effort, the use of ordinary means, a willingness to obey. And we'll see how that relationship unfolds in the study of God's Word. And even the ministry of this helper, right? The Gospel of John reads, to give us understanding. All of this will prompt us to approach the Bible with a humble disposition that our understanding will always be imperfect in this life. And that's not the fault of Scripture, but just the fault of finite minds that are ever growing in our understanding of God and His revelation to us. That's the sweetness of this Christian life, right? That's why we spend the remainder of our days on this earth until glory, basking in its riches and having it wash over us day after day after day because there's always more to understand. The Bible is clear. It's able to be understood. Aren't you thankful for that for, the, for a moment? Just on a worship plane? To have a God, we have a, a deistic view of the world that God created the world and spun it and set it off and it has no relationship to it. And He communicates in vague terms that no one can understand and mystifies the mind and God just delights to, to baffle people, Right? And He's nebulous and far off and unable to be understood. That is not our God. He wants to communicate and has communicated. That's important. He has communicated to us through His Word. Now, again, just to rest on the practical for a moment, fast forward to 2021. And now as the church, let's ask, when we're talking about the clarity of Scripture, why is this important? why is it important there's a few things to note and we could spend a lot of time here let me just mention two areas of which this is important in our modern context we we live in a day of what's called postmodern hermeneutics okay postmodern hermeneutics what we're meaning by that in postmodernism many of the premises and presuppositions that it holds rest on this fact there is no absolute truth And because there's no absolute truth, there's no single meaning to any given text. And how alarming that is. Instead, for those who cling to this error and this way of thought, meaning of a particular passage depends upon the assumptions and the purposes and presuppositions of the reader or interpreter that they bring to the passage. Now for us, this type of way of thought, that there's no absolute truth, this day of suspicion that we live in, this deterioration of objective truth, this has been the culmination of a line of thinking dating back all the way to the late 1800s and even prior, to be honest. Specifically by an individual we know as Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Now, Nietzsche believed many different things, but one of the things that he espoused is that any claims to know what is true is in reality just covert attempts to manipulate people. What is he saying there? For Nietzsche, this is sort of the ace of spades of, of shutting down an argument and an exchange of ideas and debate. Right? If you try to reason and argue and discuss on objective truth, Nietzsche would just lay down the ace of spades and says, "Hold up, be quiet." Your efforts to cling and claim to know what is true is just an attempt to cling to power and manipulate people. Discussion closed. And we see that today, don't we? Now, there are various Ace of that are laid down today. We're in exchange of idea and debate. You are either labeled and fill in the list. A racist, a bigot. Argument, discussion closed. You see the intellectual dishonesty here, right? And the laziness as well. So postmodernism has swelled from the late 1800s to this time, and now there's this insistence on indeterminate meaning. And this indeterminate, undefined, non-objective meaning stands in stark contrast to what the biblical authors themselves urged upon us page after page in this book. All of them the espouses there is a meaning of which is to be mind and cherished and believed and obeyed. It's objective, endures forever, and it comes from God Himself. The other component, an area of life, is just the opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. You have the catechism of the Catholic Church, which explains that the correct interpretation of Scripture it has to come from the teaching of the officers of the church. And so they don't hold to this perspicuity of Scripture, this clarity of Scripture, that if the common man is to understand it, they must sit under the teaching of the leaders of the church. And we'll get to the, this in a moment and unpack that a little bit further. Let's make our way to the now the necessity of Scripture. How, can, how much can people know without the Bible? That is the question. How much can people know without the Bible? And so let's define the necessity of Scripture. This means that the Bible is necessary for a few things, okay? The Bible is necessary for knowing the Gospel, maintaining spiritual life, and knowing God's will. Knowing the Gospel, maintaining spiritual life, and knowing God's will. And while it is necessary for these things, it is not necessary for knowing that God exists, or knowing something about his moral laws and character. Now let's walk through those things. The Bible is necessary first for the knowledge, for knowledge of the gospel. You have a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what, church? The Word of Christ. The Bible is necessary for salvation then in this sense. One must either read the gospel message themselves in the Bible, or they must hear it being proclaimed by another. Those things must be present. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Now, if people can only be saved through faith in Christ and this Christ revealed in the treasure that is known as the Gospel, someone can rightfully and legitimately ask a very honest question. Well, then, how were believers under the Old Covenant saved it's a sound question the answer must be that those who were saved in under the old covenant were also saved through trusting in christ but theirs was a forward-looking faith and that forward-looking faith was based on the word of promise that a messiah and a redeemer was scheduled to come and yet it was faith all the same was it not You traverse to the book of Hebrews, right? The hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. You have these Old Testament saints, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. And the author of Hebrews says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Jesus can say of Abraham in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And so evidently, even Old Testament saints and believers had saving faith in Christ to whom they were looking forward. And that was not with an exact knowledge of all the historical details of Christ's life, but with great faith, nonetheless, that there was an absolute reliability in God's word of promise that someone was going to come. Right. Genesis 315. There was a seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And now all of God's people now raise a cup and a piece of bread as a s- s- symbolic gesture that God has been faithful to that word of promise. What's the takeaway for you and I? Well, can someone know that God exists and can they know something about God's moral law and His character? Yes, absolutely. But there is absolutely no possibility, none whatsoever, of coming to saving faith apart from a specific knowledge of God's words of promise found in His Word, the Gospel. The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. You don't get understanding of the gospel. You don't get the message of the gospel by looking at a sunset is the point. Secondly, the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter four, quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here, Jesus indicates that our spiritual life is maintained by a daily nourishment of God's Word. In the same way that our physical lives are maintained by a daily nourishment of physical food. To neglect the reading of God's Word is just as detrimental to the health of our souls and spiritual life as a neglect of physical food is a detriment to our own physical lives. That is the logic that Christ is making here. Similarly Moses tells the people of Israel the importance of God's word as well the necessity for it Deuteronomy 32:47 For it is no empty word for you but your very life I love that phrase it's your very life and by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going to long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess Peter in the New Testament encourages Christians to whom he writes, First Peter two like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in salvation. What is this pure spiritual milk? What well, is what we read at the top of the hour, First 1 Peter 1.23, three? It is the enduring word of God. The grass withers, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This word, this milk, consuming it, being nourished by it, is how you grow, is how you make gospel progress. Hebrews 5.13, this is not in your outline. The author makes a similar point. You can write this down. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infinite. But solid food is for the mature who because of, I love this, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Don't we want that as, as the spiritual maturation process unfolds? That via practice, we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. We grow in holiness. We grow in Christ's likeness. And we do these things for God's glory. The Bible then is absolutely necessary for maintaining spiritual life and for growth in the Christian life. Third, the Bible is not only necessary for knowledge of the gospel, not only for maintaining spiritual life, but it's necessary for knowing God's will. All of us have some measure of the knowledge of God's will through our conscience. And we've talked about that a little bit already, and we'll speak of it in a moment for moments too. We all have some measure of God's will just via our conscience, but it's an indistinct knowledge, Right? We live in a fallen world where sin likes to distort our perception of right and wrong. This brings faulty reasoning into our thinking processes and and even prompts us from time to time and nudges us to suppress this testimony of our conscience. And so at best, our conscience simply gives us an approximation of God's will. What's the takeaway there? My conscience gives me some semblance of an idea of what is right and wrong. But if we are to ever latch onto clear and definitive statements on what God's will is, where does it have to come from? It has to come from this book. Thus saith the Lord. I had a conversation with a family member just yesterday, an elderly saint. And there's all sorts of confusion of, What was her purpose for life still on earth at 91 years old? Why am I still here? And she's wrestling for what her mission is in this life. I told my wife, Natalie, later, it was just, I I walked away with a great degree of heaviness that this person's in pursuit of this purpose and meaning. She felt empty inside. She's a believer, but there's this undeveloped understanding of what, what is God's will for me? Well, Sit down with this book and have it speak to you that this is his will of what kind of daughter in Christ to be and what you should be doing in your life and what it looks like to steward that life faithfully unto him. And she was fraught with all sorts of unsettledness unnecessarily. If we want to know God's will, we don't wrestle for God to change our circumstances, for him to alter our feelings. We place our lives under what He's already revealed in this book. For us, what about people who do not read the Bible? Again, a natural question of which we have to ask. What about people that don't read the Bible? Can they obtain any knowledge of God? Can they know anything about His laws? And the yes, the answer is yes. Without the Bible, some knowledge of God is possible. But it's not absolutely certain knowledge. That leads us to what the Bible is not necessary for. And one is that God exists. You do not need the Bible to know that God exists. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Barnabas and Paul tell the Greek inhabitants of Lystra about the living God who made the heavens and the earth. Acts chapter 14. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without a witness, For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He did not leave you without a witness. He made the heavens and the earth, and everything you observe in creation, Romans 1, is screaming to you of His divine nature and eternal power. That's what even Romans 1 expounds upon. That even the wicked who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they cannot avoid the the evidences of God's existence and nature in the created order. For what can be known about God, chapter 1, verse 19 of Romans, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What can be known about God was plain even to the wicked. Now, all of this general revelation makes them morally accountable. It screams to them the existence of God. But it is not sufficient for salvation. For that, the Bible is necessary. The Bible is also not necessary for knowing something about his character and moral laws. Again, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The consciences of unbelievers bear witness to God's moral law. It's wrong to take human life. It's wrong to steal property. Now, that is being suppressed in profound ways today, and it has been throughout redemptive history, but there's a suppression of that inner reality all the same. It either accuses or even excuses them. That law in the heart of unbelievers is either distorted or suppressed and held down so, this knowledge of God's laws derives from these sources known as the conscience. It's never quite perfect, is it? And it does not lead people to salvation. It only gives them awareness of God's moral demands and only makes them accountable. For them to be saved, the gospel has to be preached, the word of Christ has to be heard. We could say a lot more here, and I'll skip about three pages of my notes. Let's make our way to the sufficiency of the Bible. The question here is, is the Bible enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do? Or are we to look for other words from God in addition to these words of Scripture? This brings us to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, what the Reformers called sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Let's define it for a moment. The sufficiency of Scripture means that this book contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and obeying Him completely. It has all the words that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him completely. And the hope, as we unpack this particular characteristic is that God would prompt us to consider what He has told us in the Bible as being enough for us and that it is sufficient, which should then compel us to do what, church? Rejoice and be thankful that God has revealed Himself to us and to be content with what He's given us. Now, When we say the Bible is sufficient, well, of course, we live this side of the cross in the year 2021. We have 66 books of our Bible. The natural question for us, well, what do we do with progressive revelation throughout history? God, in various dispensations, chose to reveal certain things to which now we have the whole counsel of God, and it is closed, and it is final, and it's sufficient. Well, was it sufficient for them then? Again, a very logical question. God has always, always taken the initiative to reveal Himself to His people. And He, in His sovereign will, has decided decided to reveal and what not to reveal in certain times of redemptive history. And in each stage of that history, the things that God revealed for His people up until that point was sufficient for them in that moment. It was still sufficient even as god was still progressively revealing more and more even until we get to the now the bible as we know it completed and closed and full for us this doctrine is not created of man's own making there's a biblical basis for this right one it is sufficient for salvation let's underscore this yet again 2 timothy 3:15 from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The context said that the sacred writings here means that these are the written words of Scripture. The implication being that the words of God that we have in Scripture are all the words that we need to make us wise for salvation. That God created the heavens and earth and He made man in His image. There was a massive degree of corruption and brokenness that struck the world and separated man from God because of sin. God would make a covenant with His people. He would send Christ His Son to do a work for us that we could not do for ourselves and make us right with God through His finished work on the cross, being raised on the third day, declaring to everyone that Christ's work on the cross to atone for sin is enough and sufficient and complete. It is all we need. This message of the Bible makes us wise for salvation. How else do we understand that we are in need of a Savior in the first place but to know that we are sinful and all fall short of the glory of God? The Bible reveals these things to us. It's also sufficient just for the Christian life because the very following verse, Paul indicates that it's sufficient to equip us for Christian living. All Scripture is breathed out by God, our memory verse for this section, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for how many good works? Every good work. And several of you mouthed that, even in advance. That is profound. Every good work. Here Paul indicates that one purpose for which God caused Scripture to be written is to train us that we would be equipped for every good work. Meaning, if there is any, any, any good work that God wants us to do as Christians, this passage indicates that God has given us all that we need, all of the provision that we need in His Word for the training of said doing and the faithfulness of said doing. Why is this important for us? To say that the Bible is sufficient. I want you to think about your modern context, and I've done more talking than usual in the sense that I have absorbed all of the time in my narcissistic being, right? I want to hear from you. Think today, culturally speaking, why is the sufficiency of Scripture, why is it important? What's that? Because of false teaching. Excellent. We'll unpack that in about 10 seconds. False teaching, what else? What's that, person? Truth is up to you, okay? That postmodern hermeneutics, right? That narcissistic eisegesis that we talked about? It's up to me. I I, I apply the meaning to it. I bring the meaning to it, and I extract it out of it. Okay, you've got a God hating culture that wants to stand in stark contrast to God, replace God. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. We see that in very pronounced ways today. Any other items? There's about five of you that want to say something. I can see it, it's like right here. But you are terrified right now. Edgar, what's that? The day is drawing near. Yeah, absolutely. We read that a little bit a moment ago in First, First Peter, right? The day is drawing near. There should be an urgency and fervency about our lives. Let me point out a few. At this point, we deviate from the Roman Catholic Church, and we always have, right, as Protestants. Roman Catholic Church would say that we have not found all that God says for us about any particular subject until we have also listened to the official teaching of the church throughout its history. And if you're familiar with the Roman Catholic Church, I've talked to several of you, you've come out of the Roman Catholic Church. You have the Catechism of the Catholic Church which reads the following. The church to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, this does not res- derive her certainty about re- all revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. And what an abomination of a statement that is. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Now for us, we would respond that although the history of the church helps us to no doubt understand what God has told us in the Bible, never in church history has God added to His teaching or His commands in Scripture. Never has he conveyed to us that we need both the word of the Lord, which endures forever, as well as the tradition and teaching of men. God has never added anything that he requires for us to do or believe. It is sufficient to equip us for every good work, Paul says. Again, sola scriptura. This is why many of the reformers laid down their very lives was for these and other principles and convictions. We also differ from non-evangelical theologians known as theological liberals at this juncture. Theological liberals are not convinced that the Bible is God's Word, and we've talked about this at length. And they don't believe it's God's Word in any sort of unique or authoritative sense. And as such individuals, they also believe that to therefore to understand the Bible, we don't just search only the Bible. But we also search many other Christian writings in an attempt to find not so much what God has said to mankind, but rather what many early Christians have experienced in their relationship with God. And the result and byproduct and danger of that, you have a cacophony of varied opinions and viewpoints and ideologies and philosophy of men. Colossians 2.8, see that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And theological liberalism, spits in the face of Colossians 2.8. God's Word is not the final rule of authority. I, I also want to have an eclectic rule of faith where I look at everyone's viewpoints and all of them are created equal. And I will take a hodgepodge view of my faith and understanding and application of God's Word. And we wonder why today, while so many professing believers are walking around sick, And miserable, and actually being used by the enemy himself to distort, and as Peter says, to twist twist God's word for their own destruction. Solomon said, There's nothing new under the sun, is there? It's still happening today. For them, they do not expect to arrive at any sort of single, unified meaning or conclusion of what God wants us to think or do. So for them, their quest simply remains discovering a vast array of opinions and viewpoints. And what's the result of that? They are the children of Ephesians 4. Many of them, I would argue, are not even children of God. They are professing individuals who are tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. And they are leading others astray, Allah, false teachers. Now for us, that is not our conviction here at Northlake Bible Church. Our search for answers to theological and ethical questions is not a search to find what various believers have thought throughout history. Our quest is to find and understand what God himself has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. It is sufficient. I could say a lot more, and we're upon time. But you have a unhealthy practice today of entering into biblical counseling here at this juncture as well to say that the bible is sufficient we could spend weeks talking about the various ways that that manifests itself all the tributaries that flow out of that the applications and practices of the church one of them if we say the bible is sufficient when individuals are being counseled to repent of sin and, and examine their lives and grow in holiness and see relationships re, you know reconciled and brought together and whatever it is at the issue at hand that they need to be made more healthy in christ You have a realm of counseling today which is not only taking God's Word, but they have also aligned it and propped up next to it all sorts of psycho Bible and interwoven it into Christian counseling. For us, the Bible is sufficient. Any counseling that we give, that Bible better be open and right in front of you and tether your life to it and hang on for dear life and grow in and through it, right? Well, you're looking at your notes and you can see we have a host of practical applications of the sufficiency of Scripture. And for the very first time here in Equip Ministry, marked this day, August 15th, we did not finish our notes. So, everyone weep bitterly. <laughs> yes. I said weep, not laugh. Okay. Ah, uh, Lots to say. Maybe we'll, we'll use that as an intro into next Sunday. I think we shall. Okay, how to study the Bible. Let me close this in prayer. Let's give thanks that the Bible is full of authority, profound authority, non-negotiable, irrevocable authority. Let us praise the Lord that is clear, it's necessary, it is life to us, as Moses said. And let us praise Him that it is sufficient. Father, we thank You this morning. We pray that these doctrines that many of us no doubt already know, we say we understand, we believe. We pray that our doing and practicing and even walking into the next hour would be impacted and influenced nevertheless by the sweet reminders that these doctrines are to us. If we say that it's authoritative, Lord, it should change the way As the preacher opens God's Word to the book of Jude today, it should change the way we sit in that chair and crack open this wonderful treasure of a book. It should change the disposition, the inner disposition that we have to want to embrace it and listen to it with every ounce of our being. To have it wash over us and convict us and train us for every good work. Lord, would You do that great work for Your glory. We pray that you would help us to listen with attentiveness because you have spoken clearly. And Lord, help us to rest and bask in his sufficiency. Father, in all of this, we, we pray that our worship would be all the sweeter. Our exaltation of your son would be all the more robust and earnest and fervent filled with passion and sincerity, the passion and sincerity that you, you God, who made the heavens and earth and have reconciled a people for yourself, that you, God, have rightfully deserved. Fill us with a high view of yourself as we enter into the next hour. Prepare our hearts even as we worship around the table. We pray this now for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.